Hi, and welcome to Book Club, a Sales Enablement Pro podcast. I'm Olivia Fuller. Sales enablement is a constantly evolving space, and we're here to help professionals stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices so they can be more effective in their jobs. Today, I'm so excited to have Julie Dirksen, author of Design for How People Learn, join us. Julie, I'd love if you could just take a minute and introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, yeah, so um, my book is Design for How People Learn, and I identify primarily as a, an instructional designer. Um, so how do we design good learning experiences that are effective at helping people basically be better at their jobs for the most part? I, almost all of what I do is, is geared towards kind of adult workplace learning. Um, and uh, Design for How People Learn came about because seemed like we were sort of missing a first book in the field that explained some of the underlying principles to people in terms of how do you think about um, designing good learning experiences and what are the factors that you need to take into account. We had some older ones, but there hadn't been one in a while. And so um, my whole marketing plan for the book was hopefully other people will recommend it. And um, it, that's worked out pretty well. I think we're somewhere of, over about 50,000 copies sold at this point. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's intended to help all those people who, um, well, I always describe the target audience as, hey, you're a good customer service rep, or it might be, hey, you're a good salesperson. We're going to let you train the other salespeople. And then all of a sudden you have to take all of this domain knowledge that you have about your job and figure out how do you communicate it to other people. And so that's really the, who the book is aimed at. And that was my origin story. I was, hey, you're a good data entry person. You can teach data entry to other people. So I had a data entry job when I was a college student. And so, so many people come at at learning and training and sales enablement from a domain expertise point of view. And so the whole point was to give people some, some, of the, some of the key ideas and background in order to be able to then figure out how do they take all this great knowledge that they have and communicate it to other people. In your book, Design for How People Learn, you talk about the importance of assessing different learning gaps um, when designing a learning experience. What are some of the different types of learning gaps that might be present? Yeah, we, you know, people are always looking for kind of a systematic way to think through a learning problem and to, to decide what to design for it. And that's where things like learning styles come from, like, oh, that'd be a way to analyze the problem. Turns out the evidence base behind learning styles isn't very good. There doesn't seem to be much evidence to support that it's an effective model. And so I wanted to give somebody, you know, give people a, a sort of a different tool set. And um, you'll see a lot of times KSAs or knowledge skills um, attitudes. And I actually expand on that a little bit. So I look at you know, if it is a knowledge gap, what's going to help people? And sometimes that is the gap between where somebody is and where they need to be. If you have a very exper experienced salesperson who totally knows their product line and all you've got are a few updates to that product line, then knowledge is all they need. They just need to know what those updates are and they'll be able to take that knowledge and go and use it. But if you've got an inexperienced salesperson who doesn't know, um, much about the product line at all, just handing them those facts probably isn't going to be enough to help them help them adequately apply those in, in the workplace. And so sometimes it's a knowledge gap, but sometimes it's more than a knowledge gap. And a lot of training, unfortunately, gets treated as we just need to tell people the thing and 
then they'll do something differently. Um, I also look at things like procedural gaps where we have a really defined rule set. So the procedure for filling out a sales report or the procedure for you know, um, doing an order form or something like that might be really specific and we have a nice set of rules and we know exactly what correct performance looks like. Um, but then there's also skills gaps and skills. I have one really simple thing. Is it reasonable to think that somebody can be proficient without practice? And if the answer is no, they really can't be proficient at practice. So for example, could you call somebody up and explain it to them over the phone? Um, well, procedural stuff, maybe. You could just talk them through the steps, right? But with skills, you're never gonna like call somebody up and explain golf to them over the phone and then expect them to be able to go out and play golf. So anything where we really know that practice is gonna be important in order for somebody to get good at something, that's what I consider to be a skills gap. And skills are particularly important because then you know, the answer is sort of built right into uh, the question of what do we need to do for these people? Well, we need to give them opportunities for practice and figure out how they're gonna get feedback on their performance. Um, and I can get, I can go as deep as you want on kind of different kinds of skills and what the issues are. A lot of times it's seeing enough case examples. That's a big one that shows up in skills gaps. So expertise is often brought about because people have seen enough examples that they start to really understand what the patterns are. So, but sometimes that stuff is subtle. So like buying signs from a customer might be something that an experienced person can absolutely pinpoint. Boom, that's a buying sign. But if somebody's new and they've only seen a few customer examples, they may not be able to kind of pinpoint those. And so the question is, how many cases does that person, that new person need to see in order to develop that same level of expertise that your experienced person has? Um, I also look at gaps around habits, which are things that are, it, automatic or nearly automatic, you know, behaviors that occur in response to usually a trigger in the environment. So it's something you kind of do without thinking about it. And something can be, you can have knowledge that flossing is a good idea. You can know how to floss adequately. Um, you can even be really motivated to floss, like you totally want to start flossing and it's still not a habit for you. And so then when we have that issue of like, we need that extra that extra you know, mile or inch or whatever, whatever the distance would be to make it a habit, then the question is, how do we do that? Do we build it into procedure? Do we chain, do we make people um, much more aware of the trigger in the environment and kind of uh, predetermine how they're gonna handle that trigger so that the habit starts to become a little bit more automatic for people? Do we just practice it enough that they can do it without thinking about it? There's a number of different strategies specific to that. And so if you identify that the gap has um, habit built into it, then, then, you know, there's some other things that you can do to kind of help with that. Um, also motivation gaps, you know, and I sort of refer to this as people know what to do, but they still aren't doing it. So people know they're supposed to wear their safety equipment and yet for some reason it's not happening. And then there's kind of a whole set of questions that you go into with motivation because quite frankly, you know, we typically think of motivation as people don't care enough. But usually what the problem is with motivation is that there's no feedback in the system to reinforce the behavior or the other motivation problem is the system's actually set up to reinforce the wrong behavior. You know, um, I, I was talking to some people in one of my workshops and they were talking about their company's different attitudes towards making calls in the car when people were driving. And they both, act, both companies actually had a policy against it and one had a policy against it that was followed up on 
very carefully and you know it was a serious infraction if you're found to be like doing calls you know like making a bunch of calls while driving and the other company it was like well yeah technically it's against the rules but you know there's no way to hit your numbers without doing it so everybody just pretends it's okay and i'm like well you know the issue there isn't how motivated this person is to be safe and driving the issue is what are the feedback mechanisms that are in place in both of those environments um, and then the last one really is environment. Like sometimes it's easier to fix the system or to fix the tools or to create supports than it is to try to fix the person. Um, I've been using hand washing as an example, and obviously that's super top of mind for everybody at the moment with pandemics and things like that. But I mean, the, um, the hand washing compliance in healthcare used to be closer to about 40%. And now, um, and I will grant you, it's been a few years since I pulled the data, so I, I could be out of date, but, but the last time I pulled the data it was closer to 70%, but the difference was less about changing the people and more about the addition of things like alcohol-based hand rubs and changing the physical environments where people in to make hand washing super convenient and just part of the process of moving around like the physical environments. And so that's a case where we can spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to act differently, but actually fixing their environment probably has, has a bigger impact in that, in that case. When people have different levels of knowledge, how can you address that with the design of your learning programs? Yeah, and it really depends. So if you're in any kind of environment where the learners are interacting with each other, then figuring out ways to sort of have respect for um, the people who have more knowledge and then, you know, enlist them in the efforts that you're doing. So whether it's group work or having them, you know, kind of pairing them up with somebody who's more of a new person so that they're, you know, they can, they can actually use some of their knowledge and information to help help some of the other people in the class and also it's less tedious for them if they're actually helping people as opposed to just sort of being told stuff that they already know so this is one of the really hard problems in classroom environments this is a tough tough thing because you want to you want to design your class experience to target the learner where they're at and when they're kind of all over the place it's hard to have um, multiple experiences uh, you know especially in kind of face-to-face -face classroom and things like that. In digital environments, I think a lot about is about layering, um, layering the environment. So we've got the, the sort of straightforward version that, you know, should be good for everybody and sh everybody should be able to understand. Um, but then you can build in some aids and supports for somebody who's really new. So I didn't understand this thing, tell me more. Um, and you can also build in the the learn more or more advanced topics and so creating a good way to sort of set options in front of people so that they can adjust to the level that they want to be at um, or that they need to be at in order to you know do things and if it's a good digital learning experience there's stuff that you're asking your learners to do and so some can access more help or some can speed through it faster depending on their levels so there are ways to design some of those digital learning environments so that the learners themselves can adapt to it because our computers are still pretty stupid and the smartest person in a learning environment is still going to be your learner um, so giving them some choices and options that they can choose to see, yes, I need more information or no, I really don't. You know, they're probably the, the person best able to judge that at any given time. It's not perfect, but it's still a better solution. So trying to figure out how do we create environments where people can um, adapt the environment themselves or make choices about how much information they need at any given point. 
What are some strategies to command the attention of your learners? And this is a hard problem. Honestly, I think this is one of the hardest problems of the big, you know, the big switch that we've had to do to virtual learning is when you are in your virtual, when you're doing virtual environments, you're not, um, you're not leaving your regular workplace and kind of going to a place with less distractions, which is what happens when you go to a training class. And I mean, there's other reasons why training classes are maybe less ideal in the sense of they, they don't have the context of real life, but at the same time, the fact that you're sort of stepping out of all of these distractions is a huge benefit. And I think part of the reason that, that there's continued to be as much face-to-face um, -face learning experiences as there have been. Because, you know, it's cheaper, it's definitely cheaper to do, you know, digital and not fly people all over the place. And obviously we, you know, mostly we can't right now. So that changes the equation. But I think that the social aspect and the aspect of being able to like put yourself outside of all of those distractions or things. So I think there's two pieces to that. One is um, ensuring that, you know, any of your virtual learning experiences are giving um, people a role, some reason or some active thing to do. So even if it's just a Zoom session, can you be asking them questions? Can you have them respond in the chat? Can you have some things that they work on? Can you use breakout groups? Can you do anything that kind of creates that sort of focus of, I have to do this thing so that helps me pay attention um, and then the other piece is I think people are, are you know there's certainly strategies that you can encourage people to do about hey remember to shut off all of your notifications and remember to like turn off the ringer on your phone and put it face down and you know some of those kinds of things because um, I know I've gotten busted a few times because you're in a meeting and you know that this part doesn't apply to you and then I'll, you're checking your email and all of a sudden somebody says your name and you're like, oh, darn, I don't, I don't know what we're talking about. And, you know, like that's a very normal part of any kind of online learning environment is how many people are checking their email and things like that. And so, you know, um, I'm also a big believer with those kinds of things of not like yelling at people or shaming them, but kind of enlisting them in the in the problem solving. So what you could do at the beginning of one of those Zoom sessions is go, okay, what are what strategies are people using to help them be here and be present and be focused? And if you even just talk about it and people volunteer strategies, now they have an investment in actually then doing that thing. So um, getting people to participate in the conversation of how do we how do we manage those distractions? And then you, you know, to a certain extent, you just have to accept that some of it's a little bit inevitable. We're all, we're all doing the best we can right now, so. What's the difference between recognizing and then recalling information? Um, and then how can you ensure that uh, retention actually occurs with the information that's learned? Absolutely. So one of the biggest issues with um, most of the kind of self-study e-learning environments, so anytime you've done an e-learning course or things like that, it's relied really heavily on recognition-based learning. Um, and so like a multiple choice test gives you three or four answers and asks you to recognize the right answer. And that's a much easier cognitive task than say being able to just recall the right answer and type it in or something like that. Um, because computers are kind of dumb, they, it's really easy for a lot of those environments to just recall, you know, to really rely on um, recognition. So um, 
but unfortunately in the real world, when you're dealing with a client objection, nobody's saying which of these three choices would you like to respond to this client with? That's not how, <laughs> that's not how that goes, sadly. You don't, have, you don't have the Google Glass thing that gives you your little choices right up there here. Which option would you like to say to this customer? Um, uh, we may get there eventually, but we don't have it right now uh, in most cases. Um, uh, and so if people have only learned to that standard where they can pick it out of a list, which is recognition, then they may not be able to actually recall it and be able to use that answer when they go back out into the fields and they're talking to somebody. Um, and so in order to get them to that recall standard where they can actually generate the answer for somebody, they probably need to practice actually doing that. Now, one of the nice things about digital tools is there are a lot of ways for people to like record themselves or, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, and I know that there are a number of, and I won't, I won't get into naming any of them, but there are a number of kind of webcam based um, sales simulation things that are out there in the world. And so those can be really nice. I like the ones where people actually have to come up with their own answer. Um, as opposed to just choosing one from a set of options. And choosing one from a set of options can be a great way to learn it in the first place, but it probably won't get you to the point where you can actually then recall that answer when you're talking to a customer. So the question is, how do we get the practice to the point where people can actually remember this answer and, and use it when they get out into the world, as opposed to just being able to choose it from a, from a list? How can learning design help turn skills into habits? Yeah, so one of my favorite um, sort of little tools or tricks for habits is something called implementation intentions. And what implementation intentions are, this is a researcher named Peter Gullwitzer who's done a lot of, uh, lot of work in this area. And what he's looked at is, is basically just setting up a little script for yourself. When X happens, I'll do Y. And so basically we know that we're gonna get certain responses back. So let's say we're in a sales call, we know we're going to get certain objections. And I think, I think with objections, there's pretty good stuff around when you get this objection, here's what, here's what your plan is. But if you think about it in terms of all of these sort of little triggers that exist out in the world. So, so I'll give you an example of what an implementation intention might look like. Um, let's say you want to quit smoking and you know that you're going to get cravings to smoke at some point. So you can create an implementation intention that says, okay, when I feel that craving, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to distract myself. And that one's okay, but you can actually make it more specific. So you could say, if I get a craving to smoke because I'm stressed out, I'll call my sister. And my sister will talk me out, you know, talk me down. Um, or if I get a craving to smoke because I'm bored, I'll play Candy Crush on my phone. Or if I get a craving to smoke because I'm around other people and it's socializing, I'll chew gum, you know, or, you know, like, I'm just going to have my plan ready because typically we run into these situations where we're trying to formulate the new habit. We don't really know exactly how we want to respond to it. We know that we know we want to do it, um, but we don't necessarily have like the little script written in the back of our head because it's much easier to execute if you've already decided on what the action is when you bump into this thing. So if I hear this objection, I'm going to ask this question. Or if I bump into this problem, I'm going to do this thing. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a really tiny thing, but it's actually kind of a nice, you know, it's, it's a nice life hack for stuff. I have an implement standing implementation intention that when I can't find something in my house, so let's say I can't find the key to the, you know, the garage door or something like that. Um, 
if when I do find it eventually, because I, you know, gotta be persistent and find it, I will put it back in the first place that I looked for it when I started looking for it, because that's apparently where my brain thinks it belongs. And so instead of putting it back where I found it, I'm gonna put it back where I think it should be. And then that way, you know, things are easier to find after the next time I need the, you know, the key to the garage door lock or something like that. So having those little things can be a really nice strategy around habits. Well, Julie, thank you again for sharing your expertise here with our audience. We really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. To our audience, thanks for listening. For more insights, tips, and expertise from sales enablement leaders, visit salesenablement.pro. If there's something you'd like to share or a topic you'd like to learn more about, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you.